0: Good morning. What a joy it is to be here and share the Word of God with you. Uh, This is the first time we are using this place, our sanctuary. We do have a lot of things that we're going to get used to. Uh, For instance, the cry room in the back. We want to use it as a cry room. Let's say a baby is crying, for example. You can just briefly take them to the back and then come out when you're ready. Uh, And so we wanted to make it a temporary space for parents in case they needed a space for their kids to calm down and then join us back here in worship. The one thing that I have thought about uh, as I reflected on, you know, just the space that we have an immense sense of gratitude and thankfulness to God, um, just the humbling that God would be so gracious to us. He would send us kind people, hard, diligent workers, people who would. Uh, spend their nights not sleeping but thinking about this place make sure it was done but one of the things that I had thought about was one small desire I had but I didn't think it was that small I thought it was a big deal for me and when this design came into place it was placed in my on my laps so to speak on my lap and then They asked me, oh, what would you like to do with, you know, this and that? And then we came to the pulpit and said, what would you like to do with the pulpit? And I said, as a reformed church, as a church that really holds the word of God in centrality, I don't want anything else to really stand out except the pulpit. As soon as you walk into a house, there's something that stands out, doesn't it? And if you are, you know, interior designing your house, for example and you're really cognizant of your conscience of what you want people to notice about your house, then there's something that you want to put in the center of that house to symbolize this is the center of my home. And so before anything, before people would notice anything, I would love it if they would notice first the pulpit. And uh, the response that I got back was, I don't think the pulpit's going to be ready by the time the sanctuary's done. But I have been thinking back to that statement, which was a few months ago. And now we see, truly by the grace of God, him answering prayers. Pulpits in the center. And it is beautiful. And it's something that I really want us to notice. Before anything, we hold the word of God to be central to our faith and life. I get it. As time goes on, we will have other things. This is kind of a bare bones sanctuary right now. There will be other things that we will add on. I think they will be beautiful. They will be wonderful. They will be glorifying to God, and I will love it. Don't think that I just want this pulpit to stand alone. That's, uh, that's not what I want. I want it to be beautified by our creativity, by our, you know, just our devotion to God. And there are things that you'll see start to stand out as well. But I don't want us to lose the centrality of the Word of God that we have in Our worship and so by the grace of god um, the pulpit was actually ready a few weeks before and here we are now worshiping god here in this place and so i praise the lord for that and i do look forward to the sanctuary being beautified and being filled with more and more worshipers of god i you know it is my desire as a pastor that We fill the seats, but not just seats for seat's sake, but we fill the seats with people who long and yearn to hear the word of God. And when we hear the word of God, we do not stay the same. We are changed. And as we've been learning in Genesis, it's God who stirs up creation so that it is placed in motion. And as he stirred up creation, placing all of creation in motion, our hearts too We want it to be stirred up by the Word of God, by His voice, by the Bible, so that we are now in motion, that we are alive. So praise the Lord for even these minutiae, these details coming now into place, that we can worship God together. So as we start this portion of our worship service, let us start with a prayer. Oh God, as we do look forward to the seats being filled, we ask more importantly, Most importantly, that our hearts be filled now with your holy word, and as it is opened and preached, may you, O God, plant the seed, and may that seed bear fruit for your glory, for your namesake, in Jesus' name, amen. Let us turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 to 31. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 to 31. When you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's word. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning On the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I just want to give you a little preface. Um, I will get to the first day today, and hopefully I will get to more days as time goes on. I think each day is incredibly important And I think it's important that we meditate on it, learn about it, why he placed things the way he did. But first things first, when we read a text like this, and I wanted to read it in its whole, in its entirety, all six days, because after we read it, sometimes, and if we really read it, sometimes there may seem that there are more questions than answers when we approach a text. And my admonition and encouragement to you is keep the questions, look for the answers. What I also want to let you know that some answers may be from questions that you wouldn't have asked, but maybe you should have. When we read this, we understand that all of creation was then called into being. There is no room or no place in Genesis that would give room for us to believe that creation is self existent, that it was a struggle to get to where we are, that it was random or that it even was a divine instant emanation. Some people ask me, why didn't God just go poof and there was creation? There is no room for us to believe that or to see that in the text. And although that we see that there was once a not, the transition from the reality that we are in from what was not, that transition, that we are to pay attention to are the three words, and God said. And God said. And so the first thing that we should be reminded of is that when we see this text, we ought to see that what was created then, what is sustaining creation, and what completes its purpose and destiny, the destiny of all existence is God's word. In Colossians 1, 15 to 17, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. The writer of Colossians knows there is a purpose to creation, and we are given that purpose in Colossians. We are shown that purpose, but it should come as no surprise even as we read Genesis 1. Genesis 1 says there was creation, and if there is creation, there is purpose, and that purpose is being revealed to us step by step by step. And I did want to go from day to day. And I was preparing uh, this morning's sermon to do day by day. And I wanted to read the whole thing because I first want to take it as a unit. And then we'll go day by day as time goes on. So there will be a part two to this uh, sermon or this passage. And I want us to take this as a unit. But before that, I want to address this um, This very popular question, even among Christians, and that is the question, what does a day mean? What does a day mean? So people that have read Genesis that maybe have thought for two seconds would have started to wonder, what does a day mean here? What does it mean that God took six days to create all of existence And there are working theories from many, many popular Christian scholars, uh, such as the gap theory or the day age theory, meaning gap theory, meaning there are gaps in Genesis that we don't see, or the day age theory, meaning the day really means eons or time periods, or the framework hypothesis is a popular one among Christian scholars, meaning This is just to be taken as a framework. This is almost as if it was poetry. And finally, um, there is six day creation, meaning God created the entirety of the universe in six days. And so, as I have also grown up, I remember one of my favorite classes or courses in school was biology and especially uh, microbiology or evolutionary biology. It was one of my favorite courses, and I remember the professor going up there or the teacher going up there at the time and saying, you know, you can believe God created it, but that's not what we're teaching here. He was a Jewish man. He had, like, a kippah on, and he would say, but I'm going to teach evolution. So he would separate it. He would contrast them. And so I grew up thinking... Evolution and creation are two separate things, and a lot of people have tried to meld these things together in recent days. Are they meldable, in a sense, or can they be joined? Can you join philosophies of evolution and the story that we see in Genesis together? And I don't want to take too much time about that, uh, because I have spoken about it in episodes 63 and 64 of the Dear Church podcast, so you can check that out for yourself. And I address all four working theories right now, and I give you my take on that and um, some reasoning from the Word of God. But I want to go into what day could mean. What does day mean first? First. And people who think that a day might mean more than just a day will take passages from Scripture to defend their position, meaning they will take the Old Testament and say, well, a day doesn't necessarily have to mean a day, right? Because in Psalm 90, verse 4, it says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. So like a thousand years are like just the passing day to God. Or 2 Peter, so that's the Old Testament. Let's look at the New Testament. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. And when Peter is talking about the Lord's day, he says this in verse 8 of chapter 3 in his second letter, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And so people are, you know, they would gather, perhaps a day could mean more than 24 hours. And so I want to respond to that and what I, I believe that the Bible says. I believe that when a Bible says a day, it means a day. If a Bible meant a year, it would have said a year. And if a Bible meant a thousand years, it would have meant, it would have said a thousand years. And so there are questions then that would inevitably rise. How could there be 24 hours before the sun? The sun wasn't created before day one was even over. Or even the rotation of the earth. Where would the earth be rotating if there were no sun to rotate around? I don't know. I don't know. But we may be asking a similar type of question, Same. it's a similar type of question to ask, Well, how did Jesus really heal that blind man? That blind man, he just put mud in his eyes. He spit on the ground, made mud, put it in his eyes, and all of a sudden he had eyeballs. How did that biological process take place, or all these biological processes take place for that blind man to regain his eyes? And the answer to that for me is I don't know. But one thing I do know, that what we are to see is that it was a supernatural work of an all-powerful God. Creation is a supernatural work of an all-powerful God. We always want to naturalize everything that happens. But when God works, he works in miraculous, miraculous ways, does he not? And he is showing us, as he created the universe... All of, his, all, of his, all of existence, excuse me, that it was a supernatural work. And I've also found that to hold on to any other understanding of creation other than the six-day model, we are shown that when you look at all these other theories out there, you have to do a whole lot of theological gymnastics to get to where you are and to try and hold it all together together. The criticism then, and it's not without criticism. I hear a lot of criticism. The criticism is that people will say, is that the answer for everything that you don't know the answer to then? You know, is God the answer to everything that you don't know the answer to? And the answer to that, I want to respond as no, no. I think we can know the answer to a lot of things But I think it's hubris to think that we can know the answer to everything. And over time, we get to see more and more. But if you are a person of study, you recognize that the more you see, you realize there's actually more you can't see, the more you don't see. Scientists refer to this as the island of knowledge. As your island of knowledge grows, so do its shores. Meaning, as the island of knowledge grows, that means the shores of what you don't know also grow. And it can be simply put as this, the more you know, the more you don't know. And if that sounds confusing, that's great because that's Socrates' whole shtick. His whole journey was about showing how much he didn't know, that he knew nothing, but he knew more than you. If you really know a lot, the more you know then, the more you know, you think you know a lot, the more you know then, the more you should be quaking in your seats then when it comes to the subject of God. But it seems as though the opposite is happening now. As time goes on, the opposite is happening, is it not? Many, many years ago, I was having a discussion and debate with a friend at a bookstore slash cafe because those existed until yesterday, apparently. But a bookstore cafe, and we were just talking about evolution and creation, and we were going back and forth, and I was telling about my findings, about how, how I love the topic. Again, I love this so much that there are two episodes on the podcast on it. it talked about DNA, protein synthesis, and evolution, about macroevolution, how, how can you jump from synthesizing protein in a certain specific manner to bring forth life, and all of a sudden synthesizing protein completely differently, which would have brought death instantaneously if you were one whole organism. We, we talked about stuff like this, and we were going back and forth about how that jump is so difficult, And then, as we were talking, someone else jumped in, someone I didn't know. He was apparently a high school science teacher, and he jumped in. And we started to have a three-way discussion about evolution and creation and things like that. He was intrigued by the things that we were talking about. That was many, many years ago. Uh, Fast forward to when I was in uh, Columbia University's library. I was reading a religious text, and a professor looked at my book, And he just kind of scoffed, Jesus, (laughs) like that. We think we're so smart, right? We have to take God out of everything, take God out of creation, because that is not only unintellectual, it's anti-intellectual. But the Word of God teaches us differently, and we see the ramifications of taking God out of our intellect proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 should really come to light here proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 says the fear of the lord is the beginning of knowledge not only the beginning of the universe but the beginning of knowledge and it continues on fools despise wisdom and instruction The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. We have so much information, but we know so little. We have all these resources, but we've become fools because we do not know God. So what is Genesis about? Genesis is about God revealing himself to us perhaps so that we don't stay fools. So what about the six days can we then observe? Let's take an aerial view before we go into the minutia. What about the six days can we observe here? Well, verses 3 to 31 are special because here we see that God will start putting things into order. In verse 2, we saw that the earth was formless and it was void, The earth was formless and void. And starting from verse 3, we see the word of God start to put, number one, form, and number two, fullness. So what was formless, he starts to put form, and what was void, he starts to put fullness. He takes what was formless, gives it form. He takes what was empty, and he fills it. And we see it specifically when we see it from the aerial view from days one to six. From days one, two, and three, it's about form. God would create on day one light and dark. On day two, he would create the sea and the sky. On day three, he would create the fertile earth that's form. And then from day four, he fills it. On day four, he creates lights of day and night. On day five, he creates the creatures of water and air. And on day six, he creates the creatures of the land. Once again, God does this in a span of six days. And it is on purpose to show us something. He uses the six days to show us a lot of things, actually. But he shows us that as we continue to see what we saw in the first few verses of the chapter is that when God continues to move and put form and fill, what he is also doing is he's moving from the broad, the expanses, to the more and more detailed and specific. He goes out from the layout of the universe and starts to map out the details to where we are standing right now. And that is is something to keep in mind throughout this journey in Genesis 1. So let's go to day one, fiat lux, or lux. After creating light, God saw that it was good. Now this is talking not only about a physical perception, this is talking also about a spiritual perception. They are interrelated, they are correlated There is a connection between the physical and the spiritual. When God sees it, he sees it also in a spiritual perception about the goodness of light. So the first thing God creates on day one is light. And light is first because light is number one. Light is life. In John chapter 1 verse 4, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Number 2 light is knowledge knowledge of what knowledge of God 2 Corinthians verse 4 to uh, chapter 4 verse 6 says for God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ it's not only simply knowledge but it is the knowledge of God number 3 light is Sweet. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 7. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Light is joy-inducing. Number four, light is something that gives us fellowship with God and with one another. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 to 7. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And number five, finally, light is the source of all good things. James chapter one, verse 17, it says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. It's from light we have good things. And that's the first thing God creates because he wants to bring good things. So light means a lot of things, especially when we just sit down and think about it, but also when we look at the word of God. And the Lord, of God, uh, Lord God shows us something more here. After he creates light, what does he do? He separates it from the darkness. He separates it from the darkness, meaning that they cannot be combined. You can't mix them because when you are putting things into order, there is a separation. And I really want us to understand this concept. These days, we don't know why we need to separate anything. We only know how to spread confusion, perhaps, but we should, things like we should all be one, uh, meaning we should all be a big glob of nothing, nothing to distinguish us, nothing to separate us, as if separation was always bad. But separation means to distinguish. And God distinguishes each component of creation, and by distinguishing each component... He gives each component a task. If you cannot distinguish between the steering wheel of your car and the tuning knob of your car radio, you should not operate that vehicle. But here we see who distinguishes, who separates. It's the one who created, he's the one that designed, and design means to distinguish. Separate. When you are designing something, you are, in fact, separating and distinguishing. So God is the one that call, uh, creates. God is the one that distinguishes or separates. And God is the one that also called. And it says here that he called the light day and he called the darkness light. And if he calls something... You name something, you have dominion over it. God is a sovereign God, and he is the one that names his creation or calls it. You know, in the ancient world, day and night were seen as a conflicting and even warring power. It's like day would fight the night and that kind of thing. That's how the ancients saw it. In the modern world, we have taken the other extreme opposite. It's just merely, day and night, it's just merely the earth spinning. In Genesis, it's neither conflict nor chance. God is above all creation, and he is sovereign over it. By separating and calling it, he is ordering it. And by ordering it, is assigning value. And when you assign value, you assign meaning, and you are putting creation, each element, each component in its proper place. So yes, it is not like the ancients see it. It is not the way the modern uh, people would see it. Even darkness has a place. And that place we see here is darkness's place is subordinate to light, And that is the way of order. That is God's design. It's not equal to light. That makes no sense at all. They're not warring powers. And it's not meaningless at all. There is a reason for it all. And this is the way of order. That is God's design. Now when you flip the order... You don't have order anymore. What you actually have is chaos. When you would think that what is supposed to be subordinate is now going to be above, and you're going to have what is above subject to what was supposed to be subordinate, then what you have is a reversal of creation. You are going backwards, and what you have then is chaos. I will read to you uh, from the book of Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20 to 25 uh, from the right translation by the way and Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20 to 25 says this and it's about flipping the order woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe, who deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble And as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust, for they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked." and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Order, Order isn't just merely something that we should pay attention to. Order is important. Not only is it important, order is good. And order is God's will. When you don't have your life in order, could it be then, if you recognize this, if you don't have your life in order, could it be then because it is you do not know God's will? And you don't know God's will because you don't know what God has said. You don't understand what he has said. You don't obey what he has said. You don't believe what God has said you don't believe God's word. We must come back to order. There is a consequence for flipping what should not be flipped. And we see that even here in just a very few verses. And at the end of verse five is the end of the first day. The way the Bible records the days are also noteworthy. In the Hebrew, it can be read as, then came the evening, then came the morning. It's just one one word, then came, right? Then came the evening, then came the morning. Then it's recorded as the first day. And this is formulaically positioned at the end of each of the six days. Interestingly enough, not the seventh, but we will get to that. And the completion of a day cycle, when you would have read this in the Hebrew, is that the completion of a day is marked with what? The completion of a day isn't marked with the sun going down or the light ending. The completion of the day is when the darkness is broken by the morning. This is what the people Reading the Bible would have recognized the end of the day isn't when the sun sets. The end of the day is when the night breaks and the night is broken. How? How is the night broken? It is broken by the next day's light. And they gave the people of God who understood this word a deeper understanding of reality Light needs to break the night for the day to be over. And for the one who understands, it means that unless the light breaks the darkness, what you are going through is not over yet. We see this even play out through the, the, our daily lives. It's common grace. You may think that the night is rough and you may slumber, but when you wake up, it's because the light of the day has broken that slumber because it has broken the night. What we are being shown here is how God takes what is chaotic and starts to place things into order. And for that to happen, for things to be placed into order, the first thing that you need is light. We need light to start to put anything into order. You can't jump to just day four and start worshiping the sun. The light must come before the sun or the moon and subsequently the understanding will come that then the light will outlast the sun and the moon. In Revelations 22 verse five it says, and the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And who is the Lord God who is our light? The light that breaks the darkness. The light that is the source of life. In John chapter 1, verse 5, it says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Who is that light? In John chapter 8, verse 12, It says, and Jesus spoke to them, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. From the beginning, we see that this was the plan of God. Not only to separate the light from the darkness, but to show us that only the true light can illuminate the way back to the creator. Only the true light can show us what is the correct order. Through sin, we have lost our way. We are rummaging in the darkness. Our lives are out of order. We have given ourselves to the Antichrist. I ask you to put it in the pocket. I hope you didn't change pants. Take it out of the pocket. We have given ourselves to the Antichrist. And what is the Antichrist? Is it not the anti-light? So we dare not trust in the anti-light or in any other quote-unquote light. As the famous hymn poignantly puts it, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. The prophet Isaiah says in chapter 9, verse 2, the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And it's only a few verses down. We see, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And this is the source The light that will last forevermore. There will be no end to this light, and everything that the light establishes in his justice and righteousness will be upheld for all eternity. And this is why we who once walked in darkness are called to a new way of life. The life that we have been called to is no longer the way of the world a world that is passing, a world that is regressing into chaos and disorder. But we have been called to the way of Christ, the great light by whom we live and move and have our being. Christ gives us new life and a new way of existence. Once a part of the accursed now seated at the table of God, once filled with darkness, now filled with light. One of the more enigmatic portions of what Jesus Christ said in his ministry here on earth, and I really love uh, this portion, and I think about it often, is I'll just read it for us, and I'll just, I'll just posit one dimension of what we are to get from it. In Luke chapter 11, he, Jesus says this, and it's about light No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part in dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light." I love that. I think about it often. In Isaiah chapter 6 that was read last week, we recognize that the eyes are blind. Our eyes are filled with darkness. We cannot see. We cannot understand. There is no option for us to see the light because our eyes have been dimmed to the point of darkness, of death, of chaos but it is when we place our trust in Jesus. It's only when we place our trust in Jesus because it's only Jesus who can make the blind eyes see that we have light enter our life. So for those that have ears, let them hear the word of the Lord and be changed. Let's pray. Almighty God, the source of all good, the giver of light, the giver of life, we thank you for the word that you give us, the truth that we have been shown, the knowledge of God that has been given to us, so that we may not stay the same, dead in our trespasses, but by placing our trust and our faith in the one true Savior the light of this world, we may have light in our lives. May we now live according to what the light would illumine to us by your holy word. May we live for your glory. May we live for you, our God. Let us take this time to pray. And as the word of God and the spirit of God convicts us, Is there darkness in your life? And the word of God would exhort us then to pray that you would be forgiven of those sins, that you would be able to place your trust in the light, for he is the one that gives eyes to the blind. He is that source of light that you need in your life so that your life can go from chaos to order so that your life can go from death to God. So let's take this time to pray.